Thank you all. Please be seated. Oh, okay. I thought I beat you to that. You know, I know, I was sharing with someone earlier, I know that the Bible tells me that we're supposed to stand on the rock. I didn't know that we were supposed to pass them too. So uh, uh, bear with me, please. All right, as we get started, let me tell you about Paul Smith. He is currently a rector at a 14th century church in Yorkshire, England, uh, St. Mary's Church in Yorkshire, England, where he refuses to change a light bulb. A light bulb, not just any light bulb now, but one in the center of the ceiling, some 30 feet high. Now, I think, you know, as I'm, I'm looking around, we need some people to uh, maybe change some light bulbs out ourselves, don't we? <laughs> but he's not a daredevil. His mentor wasn't evil Knievel, and he wasn't about to put any sort of ladder in there to crawl up or walk up to try to change that light bulb. And so he decided that he was going to see who in town had the scaffolding necessary to come and to uh, build that up in the sanctuary to where they could reach that light bulb up at the top. And found out that it would cost $700 for one company to come in to change the church's light bulb so he decided it wasn't worth it it cost too much and it will never get changed because it cost too much now i'm going to circle back around to that sentiment for just a second uh, in just a minute but so bear with me so so i thought i'd ask you in case you didn't know how many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb well, it only takes one, but it helps because all of their hands are up in the air anyway. How many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? None. Because if God predestined the light to go out, then you need to accept it. How many TV evangelists does it take to change a light bulb? One. But for the message of light to continue, you need to send in your donation today. How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? None, because they use candles. How many Amish folk does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, we need to form a committee to see if we can afford to change it. Decide what type of bulb we're going to replace it with. Nominate someone to change a light bulb. Then wait for the next business meeting to make a motion to see if it gets approved to change said light bulb. <laughs> right? Am I right? Who knows? Yeah, we know what it's like, right? Change is costly. It costs a lot sometimes. And in some instances, because of the cost, a church will decide to play it safe than actually go through the difficult process of working through and enact change. But the dividends, the dividends are worth it. Far more than staying in the barren position that some churches find themselves in. This is how the Apostle Paul put it. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... 
forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to win the goal, or press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Change is necessary sometimes to move forward, to reap reward, to obtain to the full measure God has ordained us for. There are times when we have to take a good long look at who we are, what we've become, where we've been, where we've ended up, and where we may end up going. There's a lot of discussion in those in, when we go through that sort of process. And we're in that process this year as we have entered into 2021 and are, we're beginning to go through this vision casting campaign together. My messages this month has been on laying the foundation for, for the discussions that we're going to have during the course of the next three, six, eight, ten months, however long it takes for the Lord to bring us together in, in a unified goal and mission and direction for First Baptist. So for the last two Sundays, we have been going through the ten habits that can cripple the church. And we've taken a look at six of them so far. They're up on the screen. This sermon series' goal has been to sort of to lay out what some of the issues that, that are consistent with the decline and the incapacitation of certain churches today. They've been compiled, uh, Stephen Gray and Tom Rayner, both in their two individual works, but yet working off of the same premise. Tom Rayner in his book, Essential Church, and uh, Stephen Gray through an article called uh, Ten Habits of Dying Churches. And, and I, I've sort of taken what I've read and studied through their writings and, and, ha and have and put together these and, and, and kind of, you know, kind of, uh, kind of collaborated in terms of molding it and shaping it for who, what First Baptist needs to be looking out for. Not that I know that these are habits and, and hang-ups that First Baptist has. I've only been here three months. But these are things that we need to make certain are part of our discussion in case they have become habitual. As we are looking at what our core values and beliefs and what our mission and our vision needs to be in 2021 and going forward for such a time as this to be effective with the resources, to be good stewards of the resources that God has given us to reach the community that he has planted this church in for well over 130 years. And yes, this discussion will involve change. It will involve discussing necessary changes, changes to our structure, to our processes, how we budget, what we budget for, how we plan, what we plan for. And it's going to be a challenge to the establishment. And I've tried this month to lay out a reason as to why we need to question the establishment that we have become so we're going to be putting certain things in the proverbial hot seat over the next couple of months. Not necessarily on Sunday mornings as, as, and from the pulpit, but in meetings and discussions with, with deacons and elders and staff and, and, and ministry team leaders and, and whatnot. We're going to deal with any habits, especially in regards to the 10 that we've been outlying, that, that, that may have crept into 
and made us an establishment where we have planted our feet and this is what, who we are and what we're going to do and, 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 and no one, not even God, can challenge that. And so the questions we ask and the way that we respond to those questions, the, the answers and the strategy given in response to those questions, it's, well, to tell you the truth, it's, it's only natural that, that it's going to drum up some, some feelings, some, some past some, some issues in the past, things that maybe we didn't deal with and they, and they have caused us to go down a, a, certain, a certain way ourselves or things that we didn't deal with appropriately, things we haven't forgiven even from our past because when you, when you don't deal appropriately with your past, it's going to affect the decisions that you make today. And I see that in my life personally and I see it in the in the life and the habits of churches as well because we thankfully we worship a God who who heals we worship a God who has forgiven we worship a God who hasn't just forgiven but he continues to forgive and we are too we are too there are several churches who no longer make an impact for the glory of God in their community. And, and we can see it because of their barrenness. We can see it because they're beginning to shudder. We see it because of what's going on in the community around them and what their community even has to say about them as a church. And I think that one of them that's very apparent is this seventh habit that we're starting with today. The seventh crippling habit is because they're a church in conflict. The, the point here is that, is that many churches are, are fighting or more churches are fighting within themselves so much that no one wants to be there anymore. No one cares to serve at a church like that. No one cares to give to a church that is in conflict. No one wants to be where the spirit isn't one of grace, but one of tension. I've served a congregation where they were still reeling from a split from 40 years before. Still harboring resentment. Brothers and sisters, whole families who were in conflict as families and not just within the church but outside the church because their brother or sister chose to leave with that split and start a new church in the community that was only two blocks away. And brothers and sisters who were no longer, I'm talking about blood brothers and sisters now, who were no longer worshiping together. Because they chose to take sides. And here I am in this church 40 years later as, I've, as I'm you know, having these discussions with them about who they are and where they've been. And, and this is the discussion of something that happened 40 years ago that they haven't been able to let go of. A resentment from decades before. A bitterness that didn't just affect the church but also affected families outside the church. And then I found it interesting that as we began to hold those church homecomings, remember those every year, those church homecomings, and, and you would send it out to the community, you know, if you used to be a member of the church, come to church on this Sunday, and, uh, and, we, and, and you would usually 
call on a former pastor to come and to, and to preach at these homecomings. And I remember at the first one, the first pastor that came back. And I remember during, there was a testimony time in this about people wanting to share stories about their, about, uh, you know, what they remember at, at this particular church. And, and I remember a family standing up and this lady in tears because of not the split from 40 years ago, but the split from 10 years ago. Oh, that was news to me. And she was asking the church for their forgiveness of the part and the role that, that she played. And then the pastor gets up and he preaches. And, and I notice a particular theme on that day. And so then, you know, we, we go about our work. The next year, it's homecoming Sunday. We invite a different pastor to come and to, and to preach on that Sunday. And he gets up to preach and he has a similar message like the one from the homecoming before so okay this is interesting and you know another year passes it's my third homecoming here at this congregation we invite another pastor to come and lo and behold his his message his topic is the same for three years straight forgiveness for three years straight, these former pastors who would have been there before me during the 40 years, one of them probably about 20 years prior, 15 years prior, 10 years prior, came back and, they, and their topic at a church homecoming now is a church finding a place for forgiveness. And it began to make sense, the stories that I was beginning to hear about this church's history. And how the bitterness and the resentment that has crept, that crept in. And it began to make sense to me, the position that they found themselves in. Why is it that the place where forgiveness from God is supposed to be found is the most difficult place to actually exhibit forgiveness? Anyone? Anyone tell me that? And it's because when you deal with people, well, you have to deal with people. When you're dealing with people, you have to deal with all the stuff that they bring to the table. Their hurts, their habits, their hang-ups, their ways of doing things, their personalities. For instance, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. I went to school in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I spent the majority of my time in rural Georgia. Now, here I am in Atlanta. Woo! Right? Some of you come from the, from the same family, same value systems, but that can't be said for everyone. Some, like me, had a dad who worked in the factory all of his life. Maybe some of you were the same, or some of you come from a more professional background. Some here went to college, others didn't. Some from parents who remained married and are still married, and some who, from a broken home. Some of you have lived here your entire life. Others have been transplanted here from not just another part of Georgia, but another part of the country. And some of them, whew. 
Some came from a home where you were the only child. Some of you probably wish you came from a home where you were the only child. Some of you came from homes that were baby factories because your parents didn't know just how to stop. But my point is that if we understand that we come from different homes, different value systems, different cultures, different habits, different ways of looking at things, different ways of approaching things, different ways of doing things, then why do we have so little grace when it comes to our differences? Why can't we in the church celebrate those differences? Be a bit more understanding of those differences than to allow those differences to segregate and separate us into factions. Factions that will inevitably cripple the church's ministry and keep us from being effective in the work of the gospel. Philippians chapter 2. Paul has this to say. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider everyone else better than you. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to talk about the attitude that Jesus had. We need to be a little bit more understanding of our differences in the church. And as I said, celebrate those differences. Use them to our advantage as we seek ways to communicate the gospel and be the hands and feet of Jesus to a diverse Mableton community. And I tell you, the church ought to resemble the diversity within its surrounding community. If not... It may very well be because of one of these habits. Like the next one. Stephen Gray writes, You may think idolatry is absent from today's church, but it is very much alive. Beloved programs, versions of the Bible, furniture, paintings on the wall, and the placement of objects have caused more quarrels, in Greek that means fight, more fights than I care to mention. We have taken these items to God-like levels in the church and have forgotten the main thing. And I would like to add to that that we tend to love the church as an institution more than we do God or the community that he's placed us in. We care more for our traditions and our programs than we do people and ministries. Like Nebuchadnezzar, we have built a grandiose golden image and care more for our facilities than what the facilities should be used for. And we have forgotten that Scripture says that the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. But you wouldn't know that when you look at what some of our churches emphasize. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to spend some time criticizing Another church. Knowing that it opens up my ministry full well to be criticized someday, someday. 
about a decade ago, a church just a couple of miles from the one I was serving at spent $10 million to build a wedding chapel and a fellowship hall for themselves. Let that sink in for just a moment. And I'm not making it up. It was even in the local newspaper. $10 million for a wedding chapel and a fellowship hall. And they built it because their sanctuary was so large, there was some that, you know, the, that were kind of questioning why they should heat up or turn the AC on in their sanctuary for small weddings and the like. So they spent $10 million to build a wedding chapel onto their facility. Now, I'm sure that it had to go to a review committee to go through the ins and outs of the project. I'm certain that there was discussion in regards to what could be done to best serve their community. And what came back was a decision that let's spend $10 million on a wedding chapel. Not for missions, not for a ministry center for the community, not for a place for children or youth, not for a place to, to, to help the homeless, not to decide to help the inner city mission that the rest of the churches were supporting with their dilapidated building, not the Georgia Baptist Children's Homes with, with their buildings as they're helping orphans and, and foster children. They decided to use $10 million of their funds to build a wedding chapel so they didn't have to heat or air their sanctuary. Sometimes I feel we can be a bit too enamored with our facilities. But at the same time, I understand that it takes facilities to meet as a church. It takes facilities to have a center of operations, a place for equipping, a place for sending out, and those facilities need to be well kept. Yet what cripples a church is when all the talk and all the monies that are used are on the facilities and not on ministry. And I can think of a lot of use for t of $10 million. In the late 1940s, the United States government commissioned the building of an $80 million troop carrier for the Navy. The purpose was to design a ship that could carry 15,000 troops during times of war, faster than any other ship built to date. By 1952, construction of the SS United States was complete. The ship could travel at 44 knots, which is 50 miles, I had to look it up, and could steam 10,000 miles without stopping for fuel or supplies. She could outrun any ship that was on the waters at the time and could travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. It was the fastest and most reliable troop carrier in the world. 14,000 troops, 1,444 crew members, and a 400-bed hospital on one ship. But the only catch is that she never carried a troop, a trooper, anywhere. The ship was 
put on standby during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but never carried anyone, any trooper, anywhere. Instead, it was remodeled, refashioned, repurposed to become a luxury liner for presidents, heads of state, and other celebrities. And where she was supposed to carry 15,000 troops before, now she could carry just 2,000 passengers. Because now it enjoyed 695 staterooms, four dining rooms, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with a heated pool, 19 elevators, and was the first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a vessel used for battle during wartime, the SS United States became a means of of indulgence for the wealthy. And here is what David Platt has to say about that. He says, when I think about the history of the SS United States, I wonder if she has something to teach us about the history of the church. The church, like the SS United States, has been designed for battle. The purpose of the church is to mobilize a people to accomplish a mission. Yet we seem to have turned the church as troop carrier into the church as luxury liner. We seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in battle for the souls of people around the world, but to indulge ourselves in the peaceful comforts of the world. This makes me wonder what would happen if we looked squarely in the face of a world with 4.5 billion people going to hell and 26,000 children dying every day of starvation and preventable diseases. And we decided it was time to move this ship into battle instead of sitting back on the pool deck while we wait for the staff to serve us more hors d'oeuvres. Or hors d'oeuvres. Depending on how you want to say that. What conviction should fall on the church that worships itself more than it worships God. Let me show you what happens to a ship when it's not being used for what it's meant for. Same ship in rusting away. You know, now they're talking about restoring the ship. I wonder what they're going to restore it to. Most likely a museum. Don't you think? It's what you do with battleships when you restore them. You turn them into museums. And that's what several of our churches have become. Museums. And that's because of habit number nine. What they're hoarding. Gray states, it amazes me the amount of money many dying churches have in their savings accounts. Now I'm not going to spend too much on this one because I think that we've seen how this habit is at play and what brings a church to that point of death hoarding remember the TV show hoarders pretty gross right it's gross when you see how disgusting some people's homes can become from years of neglect well how about empty classrooms Empty children's ministry. Empty pews. Do our hearts sink when we consider such things? I've been to Europe. I've been to big cathedrals. I've been to Notre Dame in in Paris. 
And you know what's missing from them? Worshippers. Oh, there's tourists that are there. And, and they'll get angry whenever there's a service that's going on and they have to wait before they can then tour the building. As if that's what it's meant to become. So there's some that fear that the American church will follow suit with the European church. And it will if we refuse to let go. If we continue to hoard what God has given us to reach our communities. And we need to stop worrying so much about what's in our bank account. Although we need to be good stewards. But we need to be as concerned about what's filling our pews. Or the emptiness of our pews. And I understand we need to be responsible. We need to be good stewards. But when we neglect the mission of the church. Or prevent the mission of the church. Because we don't want to spend the money. We don't want to spend the money to change the light bulb. Or because of having to open up our facilities. And use them in a way that might actually be effective. In reaching the community. What we've begun is to worship. And. The word worship means to give worth to something or to someone. We've begun to worship. We've begun, we've begun to give all of our worth, all of our stock, all of our value to the wrong entity. Matthew 6.20 says, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so with that, we've reached a final habit that can cripple the church. And let's make certain we don't fall for this one either. A failure to follow. Too many cooks in the kitchen, Stephen Gray writes. Too often pastors are treated like hirelings and not as the called anointed people of God. The pastor is forced to walk on eggshells, keeping people happy to avoid Losing his job. I remember a story someone told me once of a, of a grandfather who once told his pastor. Pastor, I was here when you got here and I'll be here when you're gone too. Yeah. You know, I understand that some of you may have lost respect for the office of pastor because of the way that you've seen another man who filled this role behave. I found myself in places where God has had to use me to restore trust in this office. There's one thing that I, I've always told myself to be sure to, to keep true as possibly as I can, and, and that is your trust. I might not be the best of options. I might, always, might not always respond appropriately given the situation. But I can promise you this. I'll give you my best. I'll give the Lord my best. I can only ask that in this time that you give me that chance. That you listen to my heart and my convictions. My passions. What I believe is important, especially as we go through this vision process together. And let God reveal to us where he's taking us together. I've seen it and I've heard it said that 
that, that pastors are supposed to stand up and give the church the vision. I'm going to go about it a different way. I want us to have questions and have discussions and have back and forths. And I want God to mold and shape me as much as he molds and shapes we. And that we go through this together. So I've tried to find a verse of scripture for each of these ten habits. This one was kind of difficult because I don't want it to sound self-serving. But it still needs to be recognized as something the church is called to do. And that's Ephesians 4. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. (laughs) I'm trying. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God put us together. That's what it says there. It was he who gave some to be. It was he who called for leadership to be leadership. It is God who has put us together that we may all reach the unity of the faith. So that we all may serve one another. So that we all may be part of this great work of ministry that he has for First Baptist Church of Mableton, Georgia. But we have to celebrate our differences. Celebrate the eclectic nature, the eclectic group that God has brought together with all of our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups, all of our processes, ways of doing things, personalities, weirdness, the motley crew that makes us up. Celebrate that. Free ourselves from worshiping the wrong thing, idolatry. From hoarding what God has blessed us with and instead understand that to be stewards means is that we take the talents and we multiply them. And that we trust the leadership that God has provided. Which may very well mean forgiving those who have hurt us in the past. There needs to be forgiveness so that we may move forward with the work God's given us and not get sidetracked on these 10 things that take our eyes off the prize up on the screen. These are the 10 that we have looked at over three Sundays. But believe it or not, These three sermons have only served as an introduction. An introduction to what God has in store for us going forward. As we begin to define, redefine our core values. Recognize what our mission is. As we discuss the dreams that he is giving us going forward. And as we 
plan out and discuss the strategies to use the resources he's given us to attain those dreams. So this is an introduction for us to hash out and have those discussions and roundtables. And it's not enough for me to just bloviate about them up here. But for us to sit together in prayer and scripture, those 40 days that we're in the middle of right now, that you can download off of our Facebook page, you can pick up a hard copy as you're leaving each and every morning at 9 o'clock as we discuss the, the passages and the, and the thoughts. I know you might not be able to watch it live at 9 o'clock, but pick it up sometime during the day. As we come together in a unified focus, unified scripture, unified thought, unified devotion. As we take a look deep into who we are. So that the Holy Spirit may convict us. And may open our eyes to what God is calling us to be and to do now. For Mableton, now. Why does this church exist? What does it mean to be a church? What is God calling us to do going forward? And how are we or aren't we effectively reaching Mableton? These are the questions that that have come up (coughs) in a couple of different ways this last month. Here we are, January 31st. January is over in just a few hours. Next week, I'm going to have a different sermon series on something. We'll do some sort of doctrinal study. I'm not going to talk vision going forward from here for a while. (coughs) Excuse me. But what we are going to do behind the scenes is that the staff's going to be talking. The elders are going to be meeting. Ministry team meetings. Next Monday night, a week from tomorrow night. Things like that. The deacons are meeting this afternoon. Things like this, where we're going to get together, we're going to talk, we're going to pray, we're going to ask questions, we're going to analyze the past, we're going to look at where we are now, and we're going to talk about where God is dreaming us to go next. But in the meantime, these these ten... These ten habits that can cripple a church. Let's resolve together. They have no place here. None whatsoever. And let's be committed. Committed to seeing us be the church God is calling us now to be. Pray with me. Father, as I put this challenge out there, I also know at the same time the worry and the fear. Because a lot of times these discussions have been done by pastors in time past. And in a lot of times, in a lot of ways, they, they weren't followed through with. But Lord, coming into this place, I'm here. I see. I feel the hunger. I sense the energy here. And Lord, and it's not 
because we're worried that we're going to be shutting our doors one day. Ah, don't think that. I think it's because you've planted within us a passion and a desire to see our community reached unlike ever before. And you have planted us right here with these wonderful housing areas right around us. And Lord, I can't, I can't think to imagine that you haven't called us to be in these neighborhoods. Lord, there was a lot discussed today, and I pray that where there needs to be forgiveness, where things need to be let go in the past, that, Lord, that you lead us and convict us to lay those things down at the foot of the cross and walk away from them. And let the blood of Jesus cover those things up. Hide them. Remove them. So that we can look to the future. I pray, Lord, that if there is any bitterness between families, and I've experienced that in other churches, and how difficult it is to be able to talk unity whenever there's division. I pray that today that your spirit would bring conviction on us if we need to go and ask for forgiveness from those we've wronged here. I pray, Lord, that in the area of idolatry, that where we have come to love First Baptist Church more than to love you and the mission you've called us to be doing, that, Lord, that we will change course. Before we become a museum. I pray Lord that in those areas that we have been hoarding for ourselves. That Lord that we recognize that these resources you've given us. The time, the talent, the tithe, the people, the facilities. That Lord that they're not just to serve one another alone. But to serve the community too. Let this community begin to see us as a selfless one. And Lord, when it comes to leadership, I pray, Lord, for your anointing. But I also pray for this church's unity. And that we recognize that we're on this together. We're on this journey together. And I thank you for that. Because I'm excited to see what you have planned. And in any of these areas, in any of these ten habits, Lord. That, Lord, that you see us. Removing them if they're present. And that, Lord, you fill those empty spots with yourself. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name.